going to have three messages on the book of Job. And today we're going to look at Job's friends. It's going to be like flying over the top in a drone and popping in every now and then to get of an idea because we're going to look at 20 or 30 chapters and so we're not going to be here for long. Be encouraged. The theme of the book so far is what ha- why do bad things happen to good people? And one of the prevailing yearnings in the heart of mankind is for there to be justice. We would like life to be fair. Anyone who's worked with kids knows that that's a big thing. That's not fair, sir. We would like life to be fair. And the basic way we look at it is this way. If there's a good God and we do good works, then we're going to have a good life. In other words, you get what you sow. And in the world of logic, this reasoning is known as a syllogism. That's a nice word. Syllogism, your word for the day. God sends calamities upon wicked people only, so if you've suffered a calamity, you must be wicked. That's how it goes. Well, Job in the book mostly avoids that, but it's still very commonly accepted even by Christian people that if you've been bad, you don't get on the Christmas list. It could also be called a theology of divine retribution and And it assumes this, that God blesses those who are faithful to him and he punishes those who sin. But in the story of Job, this equation doesn't work because we've got here an exceptionally good guy. We've got a very holy guy. We've got a noble guy who, despite the fact that as far as we can see is completely innocent, he suffers enormously. There's just no way of accusing Job of being the cause of him losing all his money, losing his possessions, losing his family and losing his health. So as we come to look at Job's friends today, that's the backdrop. And we'll we'll look at it, Job chapter 2, verse 11, is where we're going to start. And when Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite heard all about the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and they met together by agreement to go and sympathise with him and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognise him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and they sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights and no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. So it's a very sad situation of desolation after disaster. And I wonder if you've ever sat with a friend in the desolation after their disaster. Well, the first thing that Job's friends did is a good example of something to do in such a situation, if you ever get there. When the situation went, just no words are going to cut the mustard. And that's just to sit with your friend and ignore that internal pressure to speak. You know, I need to say something. No, you don't. You can ignore that. So they started off good and... Have you ever wondered 
who these supportive friends were. Well, I spent some confusing time looking into the family trees to try and work out who they were and depended a little bit on which commentator you were read as to whether they were all related to Job or just mostly related. But here's a simplified genealogical table that comes down from the scriptural ones. Now, if you can see there, Eliphaz and Bildad come from uh, different... The pinks are the wives of Abraham, three wives of Abraham, Sarah, Haggai and Keturah. So Eliphaz comes down from Sarah's line and Bildad comes down from Keturah's line. This dotted line means it's his descendant of. We haven't got all the gaps in there, but he's a Shuite, so he's from there. And Zophar, he's... Uh, He's a local from, he's a boy from Oz, instead of a boy from Oz, uh, a local. Some people say he's, uh, he's related as well, but I didn't find much evidence of that. And then you've got uh, Elihu, who comes down from Abraham's brother, Nahor, comes down from his lineage. So very strong family connections, aren't they? even though we believe they lived in some case hundreds of miles from one another, as our next little map will show, quite a long way away. Just a short line there, but it'd be a long way in the camel, on a camel's back. And so, if you think about those friends, we've got an idea of their sort of family. What about their personalities? There's a few clues about a couple of the personalities of them and the, the first one who speaks up is this guy Eliphaz, the Temanite. Now you, of course, know that Temanites had a bit of a reputation. They were known for their wisdom. We see that in Jeremiah 49 verse 7. Concerning Edom, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Is there no longer wisdom in Teman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom decayed? And apparently they are pretty good at doing that the wise things of those days, parables and uh, wise sayings. And so he's from there, he's the wisest guy, he gets the first Guernsey. He starts off the discussion. And we'll see there's discussions, one guy says something, Job answers, another guy speaks, Job answers, uh, goes around several times. And we'll just dip into a few of those discussions. So Eliphaz, what type of person? Well, look at chapter 4, verse 8. It starts off with this little phrase, as I have observed. Observed. So he's a man of experiential observation. He comes from a place where his personal experience may perhaps rule over the word of God because he experienced it. You know, that's the sort of person who says, oh, back in the day God did this, you know, and that's the way he works and we've got to keep doing it that way but if you're judging all the truth just by what you experience then you can be limited to what you can understand and so this guy evaluates something whether it's true against his experience and because he's had the experience he says well that's the way it is well let's see what he experienced he did have a very mystical religious experience in chapter 4, verse 12 onwards. Chapter 4, verse 12. How about this? A word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it. 
amid disquieting dreams in the night. So he's having a restless night. When deep sleep falls on people, fear and trembling seized me, made all my bones shake. And then we get this spine tingling thing happening. A spirit glided past my face, and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I couldn't tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes, and I heard a hushed voice. And out of that goosebumps experience comes the message, can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? And if you put that with what he said back in chapter 4, verse 7, consider now who being innocent has ever perished, where were the upright ever destroyed? And you see, he's coming up with that same thing we started off at the beginning with, this idea if it's a good God and you do good works, you'll have a good life. So there's the man of experience. Now, we're just going to go a little bit sideways for a moment because Job is a poetic book. Now, it's the type of book which literary people like, the people who like to play with language and words, and it contains vivid poetic language and striking word pictures. And we only have time in our little look at Job to highlight a, f some, a few of those vivid pictures because we're really trying to grab the main point as we go. But we'll pick out some things because they're very interesting. Did you know that some of the poetic expressions in the book of Job are still used today in the English language? Now, we're assuming this is written a few thousand years ago, so it's a long time ago, it's still in our English language. Have you heard of the phrase, by the skin of your teeth? Well, it comes from Job chapter 19, verse 20. The Hebrew translated very literally means, I have escaped with the skin of my teeth. I have no idea what the skin of my teeth is, but there's not much in it. Uh, what about this one? Nothing but skin and bones. Heard that phrase? Where's that come from? Job chapter 19. There's a few in this chapter 19. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I'm nothing but skin and bones. Another phrase which comes from Job is the root of the matter. Chapter 19, verse 28. Go to the King James Version with the these and thous. But ye should say, why persecute you, why persecute you, persecute you, why persecute we him? Should have practiced, practiced that up, shouldn't I? <laughs> Seeing the root of the matter is found in me. Another thing that comes from Job is weighed in the balance. Look at Job 31, verse 6. Let me be weighed in an even balance, that God may know mine integrity. Very interesting. So, let's pick out a couple of the dramatic word pictures which Job and his friends use. In chapter 4, verse 10, there's this dramatic picture. The teeth of the great lions are broken at the breath of God. So God's stronger than a fearsome lion's teeth. He only has to breathe. And even something which you go, well, if I was looking down at a lion charging at me with his teeth, I'd be very scared. But God's greater than that. I quite liked uh, chapter 5, verse 3, this picture. A fool taking root. And it's like growing a whole life 
just like a plant growing a whole life of foolishness. That's the fool taking root. And then you want like a bit of money? Well, what about five? Five, the thirsty pant after his wealth. They pant, they root. How strong is the desire for wealth, panting for a drink? And then there's a, a, a very famous verse in Job, in chapter 5, verse 7. Yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. And I thought, well, you're sitting around a campfire, you see the sparks go up in the air, they don't go sideways, they don't go under. It's certainly the fire's going to burn, the sparks are going to go up. And that's just saying how certain it is that all of us will have trouble from time to time. Because man is born to trouble. There's a picture of the power of words in this next one, 5 verse 15. He saves the needy from the sword in their mouths. They're sharp. They've got a sword in it. Well, it's a dramatic picture of power of words. And then one more, 5.23. For you have a covenant with the stones of the field. I mean, they have covenant with people, don't you? Well, it's just literally saying it. Sometimes a covenant is, is tied in with a geographical location. Dramatic picture. So anyway, Job is not, in, not impressed with the first guy life has on his attempt to cheer him up. He's just really stuck in his pain. So how deeply is Job stuck in his pain? Look at chapter 6, verse 1. If only my anguish could be weighed. All the misery placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. The sand of the seas, what's that? Is that the sand of all the beaches? Is it the sand of the ocean floors? Whatever it is, it's a very poetic way of saying it's an enormous amount of anguish. So that's where he's stuck in his pain. And he's not feeling cheered up by his buddy at all. If you look at chapter 6, verse 21. Now you too have proved to be of no help. And as he stays and talks on, Job just expresses this feeling that it's just like God is relentlessly targeting me. And I could be dead at any tick of the time. 6.20. He says, calls out, God... Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Don't you like me anymore? For I will soon lie down in the dust. You'll search for me and I'll be no more. And Job, still as he's talking about, he's still operating out of that basic worldview we've been talking about, this idea of justice, a fair world, it could be called theodicy. Uh, chapter 6, verse 21, he said, Why do you not pardon my offences and forgive my sins? So, surely I'm, this is happening because I'm being punished for some offences. Maybe there's something I don't know about. That's how he's feeling at that point. Well, next up in the, in the talking is Mr. Bildad the Shuite. He's Mr. Cold Hard Logic. And he comes out of a tradition of the wisdom of the ages, and he still comes down with that same party line. 
but just doesn't have any compassion. He says in 8 verse 2, Job, how long can you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? No. Does the Almighty pervert what's right? And you step back down that cold hard logic. Job, you must have been responsible for these disasters because God punishes evildoers. And then he comes out with something just amazingly, astoundingly uncompassionate and savage. Speaking to guys lost seven sons, three to girls, and he says in eight chapter four, when your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Whoa! Give him a left hook or a right hook. And this comes out of a tradition. Bildad appeals to tradition that guys in the past have worked out, and we see that from eight chapter eight, where he says, "Ask the former generation and find out what their ancestors learned, for we were born only yesterday. We know nothing, but they know." So at least they had some respect for the wisdom of the ages. Bildad has a vivid image of what it's like for people who don't know God, the godless. In 8.13, second half of the verse, and so perishes the hope of the godless. What they trust in is fragile. What they rely on is a spider's web. They lean on the web, but it gives way. They cling to it, but it doesn't hold. And Job sort of ignores the inference that he might be one of those guys doing that, and he's suffering because he's godless. And he, he moves on in his next discourse. He talks about another aspect of how he's feeling about God, and how he's feeling about God is he's feeling totally insignificant. In relation to God. In chapter 9 verse 2. How can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? Because Job knows he's just a, a mere mortal. He can't stand face to face with God. Because God, 9 verse 4, his wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who's resisted him and come out unscathed? No one's picked a fight with God and won. Yet nevertheless, he's still building up. He still wants an audience with God because he still wants an explanation directly from God, if you please, for why. Why is this happening? But, you know, God's so high and mighty. Perhaps he could find a mediator, someone to bridge the gap between him, the mere mortal, and God. That's what he says in 9.33. If only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. That's what he hopes for, but of course in the book of Job there is no mediator. And Job has to wait to the end of the book for an unmediated, very direct, frank conversation with God. Next in the round of arguments is Zophar, and he's a pretty hot-headed guy. He says in 11 verse 3, Will no one rebuke you when you mock? He's, he's going to champion the party line again, but hear how savage you can be. Just one comment from this 11 verse 12. 
But the witless can, be no, can no more become wise than a wild donkey's colt can be born human. He's pretty savage. And he does make a good point further down. Or Zophar, sorry, makes a good point. Uh, that suffering actually can make you a better person if, if, well, 11 verse 13, if you devote your heart to him and you stretch out your hands to him and if you put away the sin that's in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free of fault you will lift up your face, you will stand firm and without fear. So in the midst of suffering, stay away from sin and then you will stand firm and not be afraid. And generally, that's pretty well right. Job's got a little bit of sarcasm in him, in 12 verse 2. Doubtless, you are the only people who matter, and wisdom will die with you. Nice comeback. <laughs> and he goes on a bit further, says 13 verse 4, you, you're smearing me with lies. So he knows that they have, they're not... Being very nice to him. But in this section of the monologue in the chapter 13, we still have another very famous saying. Verse 15. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. And he's really saying he's totally in with God. He's totally committed. There's no doubt in his faith at all. And although the second half of this verse here does contain his current beef with God, he wants a face to face to defend his views. Verse 15, I will surely defend my ways to his face. We'll come back to that verse as we finish at the end. What about a life fast in round two? He's got a number of insults. I thought you might be able to use this next one. Chapter 15, verse 2. Would a wise person answer with empty notions or fill their belly with the hot east wind? And I think we know the hot east wind around here. And you do know some people who talk as though they've swallowed a whole pile of the hot east wind. <laughs> Are you the first man ever born? You got a monopoly on wisdom? Next one. It's going a bit over the line here. His face is covered with fat and his waist bulges with flesh. And then a real vivid picture in verse 33. He will be like a vine stripped of its unripe grapes. Wow, that's uh, not much in there. But just uh, highlighting some of the colourful language of Job. He's still staying in his anguish. And is vividly describing what he thinks God's doing to him. I mean, how would... How do you feel like this? He has made me his target. You feel like a punching bag sometimes? His archers surround me. Without pity, he pierces my kidneys and spills my gall on the ground. He's feeling really bad. He's, and that's a dramatic picture of it. A little one, a dramatic picture from Bildad's next discourse, 18 verse 13. Death's firstborn devours his limbs, making death into a sort of a, a carnivorous creature. But back to Job. In the midst of saying how bad things are, 
God still speaks something amazingly prophetic through him. Firstly, he calls out and says, I want my struggle to be remembered. I want it to be written down. And of course, it is written down for us and we're reading it thousands of years later. 18 verse 23. Oh, that my words were written, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. And in the midst of that, we see the amazing insight into the future which God gave Job. In the midst of all this complaining, the Holy Spirit moves him to write something which anticipates Jesus coming thousands of years later. Straight after that, verse 25 says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. He's talking about having a resurrection body, isn't he? His first skin is gone. He's still in his flesh. He's in his resurrection body. He's going to see the Lord. I will see, I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. And how my heart yearns within me. What a hope that just amazing what God saw. It just confirms to me again how amazing is the word of God. That this seed of what they didn't know until Jesus came later on is right there, back in those days in the word. So far in his, we're up to chapter 20. We've been going very fast in our drone view over the top. A couple of word pictures from chapter 20 when Zophar speaks and he says, like a dream he flies away. He's talking about the wicked guys. Like a dream he flies away. No more to be found. Banished like a vision in the night. And though the wicked flees from an iron weapon, a bronze-tipped arrow pierces him. He pulls it out of his back. A gleaming point out of his liver. Ouch. He's saying, don't run away from your enemy. Face him or you'll get an arrow in the back, a tip in your liver. In trying to work out the justice in his suffering, Job can't avoid the fact that the wicked people so often actually seem to be doing very well, thank you. And they're a bit arrogant about it. 21.14. These arrogant people, they say to God, leave us alone. We've no desire to know your ways. Who's this almighty that we should serve him? Despite the fact that they know that and despite the fact that they appear to be doing well, Job knows in the back of his mind that those appearances are not the whole story. The wicked may appear to be doing fine, but they're deluded about their own power and they're deluded about how they got to be successful. And he is not going to join them in their delusion. 21.16 But their prosperity is not in their own hands. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to stand aloof from the plans of the wicked. Our life has, in chapter 22 we're up to now, has a good challenge for all of us, I think, in this next discourse. That's a challenge to delight in what? In the right thing. Delight in the right thing. 22, 23, it says, If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove wickedness far from your tent and assign your nuggets to the dust, 
your gold of Ophir to the rocks in the ravines, then the Almighty will be your gold. A choice of silver for you. And this is our inspiration here today. Surely then you will find delight in the, in the Almighty. Find delight in the Almighty. And Job has some wonderful, inspiring things in his character for us, which we see in chapter 31. Chapter 31, verse 1, he says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. I'm sure many a preacher has used that verse over the years. It comes from Job. Go down to verse 16. If this, is what, this is the sort of guy he is. He says, look, if I've denied the desires of the poor or I've let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I've kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, if I put my trust in gold or said to gold, you're my security, if I rejoiced at my enemy's misfortune or gloated over the trouble that came to him, if those of my household have never said, who's not been filled with Job's meat? Right? No stranger had to spend the night on the street, for my door was always open to the traveller. What a man. Obvious concern for widows, obvious concern for strangers, for travellers, even for his enemies. He shares generously. He's not trapped by the love of money. He's not caught by the lusts of the flesh. An inspiring guy for us to try and emulate, to copy. And the final speaker, Elihu, the local boy from us, he comes in pretty hot against the three older guys. He said, but not one of you has proved Joe wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. He's angry with them. He doesn't have a bit much more to, to say which is any better, but nevertheless, he starts off angry. And one of the things he speaks about is the inscrutability of God. You know, you can't work him out. So that's 33 verse 14. It says, for God does speak now one way, now the other. So no one perceives it. No one can work it out. And yet he's still caught up with this basic justice idea in 33.12. It's unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. He does have some good descriptions of nature, and how nature points to how clever God is. Just an example of that in verse 14. Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Mate, do you know how God controls the crowd, the clouds? Do you know how he makes his lightning flash? Do you know how the clouds just hang poised up there? So yeah, there's more than that in there, but just giving you some inklings about what it is. So... Guys come to help, they say the bit, what does God think about it? Well, we have to go to chapter 42 now, it was down there. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he says to Eliphaz the Temite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you haven't spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. And so now take seven bulls and seven rams Go up to my servant Job, sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you. And I will accept his prayer 
and I will not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me, as my servant Job has. And so Eliphaz, Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Sophar the Nemethite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. You know, one of the big differences between Job and his friends is not that Job's suffering and they're not. It's not that Job's understanding suffering and they don't. The main difference is that Job fears God nevertheless and they don't. And whilst his suffering is like the raw material for the debate, the heart of the conflict is over what it means to fear God. And God, Job gets to this point in chapter 13, verse 15, coming back to this. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. And the message of this book is not so much about how to deal with suffering as to how to fear God even through and in spite of suffering. It's about how to fear God despite the suffering. See, if you don't fear God as a person, then you've got to hold on to some system. There has to be some system of like cosmic karma where you're good with God as long as you try to be good people. But if God is a person, now we have a bit of an understanding of what it's like to be a person. We know people like us. We know that people like us, even though they have the values, the same values as us, they don't always act the same way as us, do they? Same values, same character. They evaluate the factors and they come up with their best decision at the time. And so people have predictability of character God's character is totally predictable, but his actions will not always be the same. Because a person is not an unbending rule or a policy or a system of belief and behaviour. God has a predictable character, but not always predictable responses. He doesn't always answer prayers in the same way. He makes what he considers to be the best decision and now given the fact that he's infinite, given the fact that he knows what he's talking about, then one of the key things we need to learn in life and through suffering at times is to trust that when he comes from a position of total awareness, omniscience and omnipotence, the decisions and the actions he comes up with are totally trustworthy. We can bank on God knowing what he's doing, no matter what it looks to us. He still has things in hand and he wants us to respect that, which is what it means to fear God. There's an interesting other aspect of suffering here. <coughs> True fear of God acknowledges the possibility, perhaps the necessity, of innocent substitutionary suffering, suffering. Innocent substitutionary suffering. So if a really, really good person like Job can suffer terrible things, then maybe there's hope for wicked people. 
If an innocent person can suffer terrible things, then maybe there's a way for wicked people to somehow be justified and made right with God. And so that springs us into, from Job's time into what Jesus did. An innocent person suffering for God's higher purpose. Jesus, the innocent, suffered gross and unearned punishment to pay for the sins of the world. And so you can make some sense out of suffering if there is a Redeemer. You can make some sense if this Redeemer rose from the dead. Because if he rose, we have the same hope of resurrection. And how amazing that Job so long ago knew this. He knew that such a Redeemer, his Redeemer lived. Job 19.25, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on earth. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, you are calling for our trust, our respect, our honouring of you, which is the fear of the Lord, even if we are suffering unfairly. May we know, as Job knew, that our Redeemer lives. And in the end, he will come and he will deal out final justice. But he's not wanting to come too early, for there are many still to come to know him. And so, Lord, we will not be afraid of suffering, and we'll not be afraid of calamity and disease and disaster, for we'll never lose our relationship with you, our Redeemer, because of these things. Rather, let us be afraid of anything which causes us to lose our trust and respect in you. For that would be the real disaster, not the calamities of life. And so we want to say with you this morning, with Job this morning, though you slay us, though life goes against us, though you slay me, yet will I hope in you. As Job said, though he slays me, yet will I hope in him. We put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ.